Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Bex. And I'm Laura. And we're here to talk openly and honestly about miscarriage, stillbirth and all pregnancy loss. We aim to smash the taboo surrounding these subjects. And rebuild the topic in a way to support and educate women. Rather than isolate and shame them. Welcome to the worst girl gang ever. Hi everyone, thanks for joining us again. Here is part two of our chat with Chris Binney. And so just moving on slightly from that, after Henry was born, because you you have kids now, don't you? I do, yes. We have twin girls who've just turned two last month. Oh, I didn't Aww. realise they were so little. Yeah. Oh, lovely. We had a bit, we had a bit of a battle to, to get there. I think the back end of 2014, we were kind of trying again and we weren't getting anywhere. And we'd been to see the GP and we were trying to get a referral for IVF on the NHS and they did that thing where they sort of shuffle their papers awkwardly and and look furtively to one side because they're trying to tell you that actually you've conceived naturally so you don't tick the box. Yeah, you're not entitled. So the ironic thing is by having a term stillbirth, you rule yourself out of access to IVF. Um, Even with Bryony's age, because I remember you saying that she she was... She was 40 she was 42 so she was outside the age bracket for the area as well so she was she had conceived naturally within the previous two years and she sat above the upper age limit so they couldn't put her through for IVF on the NHS. Oh wow I didn't realize that there was an age limit on the NHS for yes, IVF. usually 35 but it varies oh from trust gosh. to trust right. and that's to do with um likelihood of success after 35, your likelihood of success in IVF drops off substantially. So I think, you know, that's a sort of financial decision. From, they, don't from want, they don't want your, their stats well, to be... Uh, or more to do with, actually, if it costs this much money and, this, and at 35 the results drop off a cliff, well, is that a good use of money, I guess? Okay. Mm, yeah. When we eventually did get in front of an IVF consultant, he said something very interesting because I remember being really angry about that, being really bitter about that. And this consultant said to us, and I'll tell you how we got to the consultant in the end in a second, but he said to us, and it totally changed how I thought about it. He said, actually, I understand why your GP has said that you're you're a sort of special case and you should be allowed to go outside the parameters. But everybody that's in this clinic is a special case. Everybody that's in this clinic is here because they need help. Because they can't have a baby. Because they can't get pregnant. Yeah. And and so he said, you know, of course, your your circumstances are tragic, but 
everybody's a special case. Yeah. But when he said, well, actually, everybody's a special case, otherwise they wouldn't be here, it kind of really changed the way I thought about the IVF process. And actually, it turned out we we did manage to get IVF on the NHS. They told us, you know, this was the rule. And then in the March of 2015, so this was 10 months after Henry died, um, Brian was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. <gasps> And so what we discovered, and I told her this was a pretty excessive way to get IVF on the NHS. <laughs> um, if They've got like a bat phone under the desk. So we got she got diagnosed at sort of half three on, on a Wednesday afternoon. And about an hour and a half later, we got a phone call from the IVF clinic saying, we'll see you at 8.30 tomorrow morning. Like they just picked oh, up this bat phone and gone, right, okay, now you're at the top of the list. We'd sat in this clinic with this oncologist and said, yeah, but, you know, we're trying for a baby. We're trying to get an IVF referral and all the rest of it. And they'd obviously, the system worked, which is rare for the NHS at the best of times, <laughs> but the system worked and it filtered through across trusts and we got the call because they couldn't start her chemo until they'd got her through egg harvesting. Yeah. So they right. had to get that done first. So it was a hormone a receptive cancer. Exactly. So we really want to start this chemo, but we know that there's a good chance that chemo will send you through menopause. Therefore, we need to do this bit of the IVF before you can start your chemo. So we've got about four weeks. So we, you need to see the IVF people tomorrow so wow. that we can get that done. And then we can. the sooner we start your chemo, the, the more chance we've got of, of you surviving this. So we kind of got rushed almost sort of by the seat of our pants, if you yeah, like. Yeah, and I'm sure, like, you're processing the whole cancer um, diagnosis as well. That must have been such a stressful, traumatic Stage three time. as well. Yeah, you know, it was daunting. We're both quite pragmatic. I think we were quite pragmatic before, and then you become even more pragmatic, I think, after, after you lose yeah, a child. Exactly. And yeah. so it was just like, right, well, kind of what are the steps? What are the processes? What do we do? Yeah. And it Breaking was, well, we do down. this, and then we do this, and we do this. And then you go on to the chemo and then we have the surgery and so on and so on. So we just kind of broke it down into chunks Mm. and just, right, what's the next thing on the list? And it was drugs, egg harvesting, create the embryos, start the chemo, have the surgery, have the radiotherapy. And then you have to wait two years. Two years. What, before you have the IVF? What they said was because of the particular type of breast cancer that she had, there was a higher chance of it coming back. But if it was going to come back, it was going to come back in the first two years. So she finished her treatment, I think, in the August. And then we were basically in a holding pattern for two years, Mm. waiting to see if this cancer would come back. How did you cope in those two years? So you're obviously still grieving Henry, still desperately wanting a baby, absolutely petrified that your wife is going to be more poorly or not recover how was that I don't know I think the thing for me as it as from my perspective is and I've only really realized this in the last year or so was that none of it was happening to me physically Mm -hmm. and so I just kind of stuck a helmet on and got on with it and and, and concentrated on on providing the support and part of that was me conforming to this society stereotype that the blokes are going to be strong and just get on with it but that sort of fitted with the pattern of people asking how she was and because and that actually made slightly more sense in the cancer context although it Mm, still would have been nice for people to ask how 
I was coping as well. But yeah, of course. It, it made slightly more sense than, than in the pregnancy loss situation. But it was just a question of, right, well, how do we get through? Well, we aim for the next thing on the list and the next thing on the list. And then you've got this sort of two-year window where you're just thinking, I hope it doesn't come back this week. I hope it doesn't come back. With the sort of regular scans and regular checks, yeah. um, MR, um, CT scans and so on. Just, and I think... Every time you have a scan, you're thinking, well, it's going to come back this time. Mm. No, it's fine. See you in three months. Oh, it's going to come back this time. Mm. Um, and, and every time it doesn't, you're one step closer to the next thing on the list. Yeah. Um, but we just essentially, it, it was just on hold for two years. The whole process was on hold. And we got to the end of the two years and they were like, okay, well, now you can, we've got these embryos. We can defrost them and see how we get on. Um and we had, I think we had nine, or I think do we have nine eggs and three embryos. Okay. Um, one of which didn't survive the thawing process. So then we had two embryos um, in transferred, and it didn't work. And that was a kind of a when you've been kind of sat on the edge of your seat for a couple of years waiting yeah. for this, where well, it's got to work because it's only all your hopes on it. It's only fair that it should work because we've been through all this stuff. Been through so much, yeah. And so, of course, it's going to work because we've had our share now. Mm. We're due a break. And so you pick yourself back up and then you and then you find that it hasn't worked. And I think that's almost like starting from scratch again with that grieving process yeah. because you've pinned so much. Everything in that two-year period, everything was focused on let's get to the end of this two years and then we can go again. Um, so I think that that takes a huge toll emotionally because there's so much riding on it. Yeah. And um, so when at that point, did you have how many, what were your options? So, well, we'd had these three embryos and, and, and so that well, we had no natural options left. Right. Um, so the, the chemotherapy had sent Brownie through menopause. So then we were just left with, you know egg donor options or so we went out to cyprus and we had a round of egg donor ivf okay and and here we are two eggs transferred and we got out to this clinic in cyprus and all over the walls there are photos of families with twins and we made this joke you know this is either gonna not work or we're gonna have twins um and didn't really think much more about it um and then you find out that you are pregnant and and, and i think you know rainbow pregnancy is a is a roller coaster in its own right. Yeah. I think it, it's a you could write a whole you could do a whole different series. You could do an entire blog, blog podcast series just on the the fears of rainbow pregnancies. I think. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the difference between a normal pregnancy and a rainbow pregnancy is you don't have any of that naivety and innocence anymore. No. You're just waiting for something to go wrong. It's sort yeah. of, we talk about this a lot, it's even from the moment that you have your positive pregnancy test, it's tainted, isn't it? It doesn't feel the same. You don't go into it with the same enthusiasm. You don't. You don't. And you think the more the more people I talk to, people will often say, well, actually, once they get beyond the gestation that they lost previously. Yeah, I mean, that's it. That's what I was going to say. But you can't. When you've had a stillbirth at full no. term, you you don't get to that point. It must have just been you must have been on tenterhooks that whole yeah, so, time. You know, we got the positive pregnancy test, and then at about eight, I think it was seven plus five, I think it was, because we we were due to we had an appointment booked with the fertility 
specialists in Leeds on the Tuesday, which would have been eight weeks. Um, and we were up at the cemetery visiting Henry and Brian just had this massive bleed oh, out of nowhere. And we were like, well, you know, you go in without any night, without any innocence or naivety. You're just waiting for something to go wrong at some point, no matter what. So we were just thinking, well, that's it then. You know, we knew this was going to happen at some point. We probably weren't expecting it to happen quite as early as this. So we rang the early pregnancy unit and the midwife that was on was a midwife that I knew. And I recognized her voice when she answered the phone on the Sunday afternoon. And she said, well, we can't book you any scans because it's Sunday afternoon. They're all gone. We'll book you in for a scan half past eight Monday morning, but come up anyway and I'll see you. And that was the, probably the best thing that she could have done at that moment. We went up to the early pregnancy on the, on the Sunday afternoon and she said, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not really sure what this is. It doesn't look like fresh blood, so I can't really explain it. I don't think you're losing the baby. Um, Babies. Baby. Oh, at this point, it was... At this point. Oh, wow. I had any scans or any appointments or anything else. She said, I can't, I don't know what's happening, but I don't think you're miscarrying. The fact that there's no fresh blood is a really good sign. And then on the Sunday evening, the fresh blood started. Oh. So we went to bed on the Sunday night thinking, we're going to go up to the hospital tomorrow morning and they're going to tell us what we already know. And we knew it was going to happen anyway. And I'd emailed the the IVF clinic and said, just to let you know, we're due in on for an appointment on Tuesday, but this has happened. We're having a scan tomorrow morning. So we went up on the Monday morning and the sonographer was really lovely and she was really kind. And you know, I guess if you're a sonographer and you're used to doing early pregnancy scans, you're probably used to shattering a lot of people's dreams. So hopefully mm. you become quite compassionate about it. And she did the sort of, the gel's going to be a really cold thing. And, 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 we're there thinking, well, we're just waiting for you to tell us that this is this has gone wrong. And and she went, no, everything looks fine. There's the first one. <laughs> there's the second one. We oh, were like, so, it's really emotional. <laughs> I get really emotional about that because I think that, that thirty second period sums up rainbow pregnancies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because we went in the space of ten seconds from. Our baby's died and we're just waiting to be told to our baby's fine. And by the way, you're now having twins. <laughs> just like that. Amazing. And, 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 but it is amazing. And it was, of course, it was amazing. But, but it added another risk factor. Yeah, of yeah, course. Of course. So now and obviously, had, Brian, so how old was Bryony by this point as well? This is 2018. So she was 46. 46, so 46, to carry twins diabetic, at previous 46, stillbirth. Diabetic, previous stillbirth, twins. Wow. Um, she had preeclampsia. Of oh, course she did. Why wouldn't she? <laughs> um, and she? And she recently had breast cancer, which yeah. just makes you high risk of everything. And she'd so. been through Holy the menopause shit. at this point as well. Yeah. So, Gosh, you know. Poor wife. It wasn't even that she had red flags on her notes. She had like flashing red lights. Red <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> sirens going off when they opened it didn't come a great deal more high risk so you know the twins thing was the only was the only thing that she had going for her was that she didn't smoke Mm. (laughs) she ticked every other once the twins thing came in she ticked all the risk factors yeah so that was just a bumpy bumpy year really yeah Mm. just Again, you're just waiting for things to go wrong. And, and was that it with the bleeding? 
that settled yeah. and yeah, okay, settled good. And everything was fine. And so we transferred our care in that pregnancy to St. Mary's Hospital in Manchester, where they run the Tommy's Rainbow Clinic. And they mm, have a okay. specialist stillbirth clinic. Um, and, and that was, to me, it was an absolute no-brainer. We were always going to do that anyway. Yeah. I know the clinical director there, the guy that runs, the consultant that runs the, the stillbirth clinic really well, and, and that we were always going to do that because I think one of the advantages of having kind of rolled your sleeves up and got stuck into this kind of stuff, the stuff that we're all doing is you start to make these contacts. And Mm. if you know that the best place in the country for people that have had previous stillbirths is Manchester, and that's 80 miles down the road. I remember people saying, well, it's, you know, it's a bit of a long way, isn't it? And I'm like, no, because I want my babies to live. Yeah. Mm. So 150 mile round trips, nothing like yeah. in the greater scheme of things we're going to make four or five 150 mile round trips over the course of an eight month period yeah. we're going to bring yeah. our babies home yeah hopefully um and so she'd had when she was in labor with henry she'd had preeclampsia but only in labor right um and she was diagnosed with preeclampsia i think it was about 25 weeks this time the second time around so she spent seven weeks as an inpatient in manchester oh wow. so we, we'd gone over and they'd said yeah you've got preeclampsia we'd like you to come in for a couple of days and you know see how they get on and they said well you know she's got preeclampsia we want to keep her in we're going to try and get her out to 32 weeks and what i later realized is when they said we're going to try and get her out to 32 weeks what they actually meant was we're probably going to be delivering within the next couple of days right wow but they didn't tell us that at the time they just said you know we'll just keep monitoring it and you know you can go home if you want we don't recommend that you do and you know when we've been when you've been through what we've been through and they say we don't recommend that you do you she don't was, she was like right <laughs> yeah get me a crossword book exactly I'm here where, to where, stay. Where, where are the menu choices you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm in anything she didn't ask for a wine list obviously but you know, <laughs> she was in like if they'd said stay in she was going to stay in yeah of course um and then and that extra level of monitoring from a specialist center was absolutely you know it's, it's no it's no slight on little district general hospitals mm-hmm. but the extra level of focus and attention that you can get from a specialist center is was, was unbelievable and they yeah. just tracked it every day and when they'd said well we think we're probably going to be delivering at 28 weeks we're going to try and get you to 32 and they actually got it to 34. Mm. Well, 34 with twins is pretty normal anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So that was amazing in the end. And I think what really struck me at that point, they were so they were born at 34 weeks on the nose by elective section. And one of the things that really hit home to me at that point was that Hallie weighed more at 34 weeks than Henry had weighed at 38. Oh wow. And that it was only then that it kind of really hit me how small he was. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, they were fine. They were perfectly healthy. Um, they just detected a slight change in terms of placenta. Okay. For, for Robin, actually, as it turned out, she was slightly smaller. But they, they detected some, the, the hint that something might just have been starting to turn, which obviously the, the key with preeclampsia is picking the right moment, mm-hmm. not going too early, but not leaving it too late and they timed it absolutely perfectly yeah so they were healthy they were fine they went to NICU and they were on NICU for three weeks 
really just to go, sort of get a bit bigger. But they were they were absolutely fine. And how does it feel that moment when you when you held your babies and you you know you were a father again after what what was years at that point? How did that feel for you? I think it's really difficult to to explain it because you you know you want there to just be this one overriding emotion and of, of happiness and of course that was my 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 overriding emotion but it's such a mix yeah. of different emotions and part of that is you know I look back and I think you know if Henry had survived and 10 months later Brian had got breast cancer we'd have stopped at one yeah. we'd have just gone okay well we've yeah. got a little boy we're good so you know delighted overjoyed that the girls were here safely but then you're thinking but you wouldn't be here if Henry hadn't died and so that's that's mm. a that's a bit of a head fuck as well yeah I bet and you know and you've waited so long for that moment and you've been we've been through so many bumps in the road at that point and and I'm wrestling with the emotions of, and you know, I remember this uh, a story that one of my good friends, this, my friends David and Siobhan, whose little girl Grace was actually born the same night as Henry, still born the same night as Henry, but down in London. Oh, wow. David's actually Hallie's godfather now. Oh. That's how close we've become. Yeah. When they went on to have one of their subsequent pregnancies, and when Siobhan gave birth, and Siobhan's mum said what is it meaning is it a boy or is it a girl and they said it's collectively turned around and said alive alive and so yeah. there is that sense of all of these things are all tied up but but I did wrestle with the fact that I had girls and not a boy mm-hmm. and I you know I that's something that I struggled struggled with a lot and even in those first few weeks and few months I remember going and looking around shops for baby outfits and I was sort of naturally drawn to the blue ones and the ones with dinosaurs on and you know I I think I went way off a cliff after the girls were born I I I, oh. I, I lost it I you know and I I look back on it now and I have no doubt in my mind that I had postnatal depression after the girls were born and one people don't really talk about postnatal depression in dads at all mm. Mm. But actually, it's a it's it's a really big thing that's not picked up because yeah. nobody's checking on the dads in the follow up appointments. People are just checking on how's the mum doing. The dads have all gone back to work as well exactly. after a couple of so, weeks. Isn't so it? it's completely undetected in in the in the vast majority of cases. But they still rec- they reckon it's the, the incidences of it are almost as high as it is in the mums. It just doesn't mm. get picked up because, like you say, that we're not there for those follow up appointments. Um, and I was telling myself, well, you're going for the blue outfits and the dinosaur outfits because you don't want the girls to be matching because that's a bit twee and, <laughs> and so they need to be in different outfits and girls can have dinosaurs too too and if you don't want if you don't think my girls can have dinosaurs then sod off I don't care what you think and, and there was an element of that but there was an also an element of subconsciously I was buying outfits for Henry mm. and I didn't I didn't appreciate that at the time it took me a long time to understand that when I was buying blue outfits and outfits with dinosaurs on or animals, I wasn't buying them for the girls. In my head, I was. But I was justifying it to myself as girls can have dinosaurs too. Yeah. Um, and, and so 
I think for me, what happened after the girls were born, not so much while they were still in the hospital, but certainly after they got home, was that that sort of whole five years of having to be strong just all came crashing down on me at once. Yeah. Mm. And, so, you know, I remember seeing a counsellor a, a, a little while afterwards and he said, well, you've got sort of compound PTSD. Yeah. Yeah. Because you haven't processed any of these things. So many every, traumas. Because every time you were in a position where you might have been able to start processing a trauma, yeah. Bam, yeah. And then the mm. next one came along. And so what's happened here is something's actually gone right. And now it's all hit you at the same time. Mm. And it, it, it seems to the to the outside observer completely illogical, completely irrational, that you could essentially have a breakdown after your babies were born healthy but not after your baby was born mm. dead mm-hmm. it's kind of though the the i think the human body and mind have this incredible strength it's like when you think of the run up to christmas you you're you keep going don't you you keep going you keep going you keep going the minute you'd stop take your foot off the gas relax everything hits you and you get ill and you're all oh, so many people are ill over their Christmas break just yeah. because you've you've kept pushing yourself and it just sounds like for years you kept pushing yourself you kept being in control you kept being the support you kept and I think that's where okay. a lot of the charity stuff came in for me because it was well I can keep control of I can yeah. Yeah. do something I can keep myself occupied and in, in good bloke fashion if I keep myself occupied then I don't have to actually deal with anything yeah because yeah. I can just be too busy to actually deal with stuff. So it's exactly that. It's five years of just pushing on and pushing on and pushing on and pushing on until the point where you get to the thing that you've been pushing on towards for that whole time. How have you coped with your mental health? I had some counselling in that first in that first year and, and, and that I think that helped kind of stabilise me and put a lid on things and keep me on a bit of an even keel. But... I think really I didn't properly get on top of it until lockdown. Right. Really? What changed then? Well, I think the thing for me was the job that I was doing, I was doing five and a half, sometimes six days a week. And I would do eight hour days and I was driving 1200 miles a week on top. And so even without all these traumas, that's not a job that ever really allowed me time to recharge or process. Yeah. And I think, you know, the great thing about that first lockdown for me was that for the first time in 10 years, I wasn't driving 1,200 miles a week. Yeah. And I wasn't spending all day, every day on my feet in operating theatres. And so for the first time, I had the time to stop and breathe and process mm-hmm. in a way that I just hadn't had the chance to do up to that point. So from that side of things actually that first lockdown worked really well for me because it it suddenly gave me that opportunity to sort of plug back into the mains and recharge my batteries in a way that I just hadn't had the opportunity to do prior to that yeah amazing gosh and what would your advice be for for anyone else if you look back on your journey now journey sorry we hate that word but if you look back on everything that happened to you now what would your advice be to your sort of former self when would you have told yourself to go and get help right back at the start Mm. I I think you know my my idea of how to process and how to deal with Henry's death was throw yourself into stuff Mm. and and in hindsight it was a distraction technique it wasn't 
it wasn't anything sure i wanted to do stuff and i wanted to make a difference and i wanted to do things in his name like a lot of brief parents do yeah but as much as that it was a distraction technique well if i if i'm busy doing all these things doing sponsored walks or setting up a charity or whatever else it might be i don't have to deal with that thing that's that's at the core of it all because i can tell myself that i'm dealing with all these other things i'm too busy to deal with that and i think you know in hindsight i'd i'd be telling myself to to seek that help much earlier and i'd also be telling myself maybe not to be so hard on myself i think mm. and i was so busy trying to be trying to conform to that stereotype of what british blokes are meant to do i was too busy trying so busy trying to be strong whether that was to do with processing Henry's death or whether that was to do with Ronnie's breast cancer, that I I wasn't I wasn't looking after myself because I wasn't allowing myself time to focus on myself. Yeah. And so I think I'd be I'd be saying get help sooner, but I'd also be saying, you know, I talk about my emotions far more freely now than I ever used to. Mm. I used to be classically British stiff upper lip. I don't have emotions. What are you talking mm. about? Uh, and I, I don't do that anymore because I understand that that's, that doesn't work. It's not a reality. It's just denial. So I think I'd be I'd be telling myself that A, it's okay to show emotion and B, it's okay to ask for help. And those yeah. are two things that blokes generally are pretty shit at doing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's yeah. great advice as well, I think, to ask for help. And, and just talk about it. Just yeah, talk yeah. about how you're... That talking is so important. And I think, yeah. you know certainly with things like support groups after pregnancy loss, you know, we quite often see that they're overwhelmingly populated by the mums because dads don't want to talk about this stuff. And you are starting to see more dad specific groups set up now so that dads can go and talk about yeah. it. And you guys will have seen the, you know, the sort of Sands United football teams and things like that. Yeah. All, of which I th- all of which I think is great. And I do think it's really important that blokes find other blokes to talk to. But I also think it's really important that couples grieve together. Mm-hmm. And I don't personally subscribe to this idea that there are support groups for the mums and there are support groups for the dads. Because what I think that does is that leads to you grieving separately. Mm. And I think it's much, personally, I think it's preferable for couples to find ways to go to these sorts of things together and grieve together you can still grieve differently and at different paces and in different ways. But if you do it together, you're more likely to keep talking and you're more likely to understand each other's experiences and stuff like that. So yeah, I think yeah. as soon as the blokes, well, I'm off to, I'm off to play football with the, with the bereaved dad's football team while you go and do this thing here, you're actually segregating them off. And I personally don't think that's necessarily the best way to do it. Maybe a little bit of both is, yeah, I think it's great to have right. the options, but yeah. I don't. I think it's important we don't fall into the trap of thinking, "Well, I go to this and you go to yeah, that." Yeah, for sure. There's a mm. case for having opportunities to come together as well. Yeah. Oh wow, Amazing. Chris! What a journey! What a story! Yeah, thank you so much for sharing it with us. My pleasure. It's been amazing to have a man here. It has. <laughs> <laughs> It has. It has been really lovely to chat to you. And thank you for being so, so open with us. And, um, you know, that all the work that you you have done and that you are doing is fantastic. Yeah, it's brilliant. I think, you know, it, 
it's nice to just make a difference, isn't it? Ultimately, sure. whether that's and, and obviously now I'm doing it, working for a different charity full time as well. So, you know, you want to get stuck into this stuff, and and that's your charity is Beyond B B E A, isn't it? So Beyond B is the charity that I do voluntary stuff for. Okay. Um, so they do the do training for healthcare professionals. Okay. Um, about how to provide better bereavement care. Yeah. And in my day job, I work for a charity called Mama Academy. Mama Academy. Cool. And they do sort of safer pregnancy information about things like movements and signs of preeclampsia. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, it's so nice to meet you and chat to you. Yeah, thanks for your time. Keep in touch. Definitely. And, um, no doubt we'll, uh, we'll speak again soon. I look forward to it. All right. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. And please, please, when you have a second, rate us, review us, and share us. And let's get this taboo smashed. See you next week. Hi, my name is Kay Adams. And to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process. So I enlisted my old chum, the filter free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.